This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part two of four of Professor Hankel's class series, The Doctrine of Revelation. It is entitled Revelation and Particular Grace. Very striking that in the history of the Reformed faith, and I refer now to the Reformed faith very broadly as including the development of the doctrines of Scripture in continental and particularly Dutch theology as well as in Presbyterian thought, the idea of revelation has always been connected with grace. The two have been inseparable. That really began already with Kelvin to a certain extent and has continued down to the centuries until the Christian Reformed Church in 1924 made a great deal of it. It's understandable in a way that the idea of revelation should always be connected with grace because revelation means that God makes himself known to man who he is and what he does. And God being who he is, his very act of making himself known is necessarily a gracious act. So it's not so surprising that throughout all of history, revelation and grace have been inseparably connected. The problem arises not so much because revelation and grace have invariably been connected to each other. The problem arises in a misinterpretation of revelation. As I mentioned last time, and this is the subject on which we're going to concentrate tonight, it has been said, even since the time of Calvin, That revelation is to be found not only in the sacred scriptures where we have the record of God's revelation in Christ, but revelation is also to be found in creation and in history. So that there are, therefore, two revelations of God. One found on the pages of sacred writ, the other found at large in the creation and in history. The difficulty arises from that kind of a division in Revelation because if Revelation is invariably connected with grace, then the revelation of God in nature or creation and history being gracious is a revelation which is to all men and therefore reveals grace to all men. Now, I'm not at all sure in the history of the church which came first. I've tried to track it down. It's almost impossible to do. Did the idea of common grace come first and then the idea of general revelation? Or did the idea of general revelation come first and then the idea of common grace? It's a kind of a question of which was first, the chicken or the egg? Did general revelation produce common grace or did common grace produce the notion of general revelation? I don't know. I can't 
find the answer to that question. But the fact remains, of course, that common grace and general revelation have become inseparably related to each other. If you believe in general revelation, you are compelled in the nature of the case to accept as well the doctrine of common grace and vice versa. It's this sort of an idea that I find extraordinarily distasteful. I have no objections to the fact that revelation is connected inseparably to grace. My dispute lies with the idea of general revelation and therefore a common grace. I remember years ago, I think, if I recall correctly, although my memory is an extraordinarily unreliable and untrustworthy servant, that it was shortly after I came to seminary when student club was still a common institution in seminary life that the lot fell on me to write a paper on general revelation. As I recall, it was a subject assigned to me in those days not only the students and the professors came together about once a month to discuss some theological subject uh, or some paper prepared by a student or a professor, but the area ministers were also invited to come to student club and enjoy fellowship with the professors and with the students. I prepared a paper on general revelation in which I took issue with the doctrine and spent the greater part of the paper refuting the notion of general revelation. I can still see before my eyes the looks, the startled looks of our older ministers especially who had been teaching the concept of general revelation, though not common grace, of course, in their Essentials Catechism classes for years, and who had done so because the Essentials book that Reverend Hooksma had prepared had included in it, in an early lesson, if not lesson one, the idea of general revelation. And I could see, and to be honest with you, it began to make me extraordinarily nervous I could see that by the time I was finished with my paper, it would only be the kindness of my colleagues which would prevent me from being branded as a heretic. And I no more than concluded my paper in one of the older ministers whom I respected then and still respect with all my heart, gasped and said, Why? I've been teaching that. Forty years, and now you tell me I'm wrong. Well, I wasn't really of a mind to do that, of course. And yet, I thought more about it and pondered the matter frequently and discussed it in the course of many, many seminary classes with my students and read the books on it and simply became more and more persuaded that general revelation was 
a misnomer and was not true. There was no evidence in Scripture, in my opinion, for general revelation. I was comforted in that conclusion by the fact that Reverend Huxima had come to the same conclusion in some of his later writings. And at least I had his support, even though it was a support that had come toward the end of his life. It is going to be the burden of what I have to say tonight to do away once and for all with the idea of general revelation. There ain't no such thing. And to hold to a doctrine of general revelation is dangerous to say the least. And if consistently pursued, will inevitably lead one in the direction of common grace. Before we get into some of the questions involved in this, I want to read to you some of the quotes which I have included in the outline which connect general revelation and common grace. Quotes which are taken from the book entitled Our Reasonable Faith written by Herman Bovink, published by Erdman's Publishing in 1956. That book was in the Dutch entitled Magnalia Dei, which is the Latin for an expression found in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, the English is the mighty works of God, the multitude, you recall, hearing uh, all the 120 speak in other tongues, say, we have heard in our own tongues of the mighty works of God. That's where Bobbing got the title for his book. In the English, the title is Our Reasonable Faith. It's still available. I'm not sure whether you can purchase it new, but it proved to be an extraordinarily popular book, and I think you probably might be able to pick it up. But there are all kinds of used copies around. Herman Bovink, of course, was a contemporary of Abraham Kuyper, one of the great Dutch theologians. And one reads Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics with profit. When he was professor in Kumpen in the Netherlands, he was soundly reformed. He made his mistake by accepting an appointment to Amsterdam and the free university there where Dr. Abraham Kuyper taught. And he came under the influence of Kuyper and under the influence of Kuyper's common grace. And very little that Bovink wrote after that was of much value. Let me give you a few quotes which are perhaps the best possible statement of the relation between general revelation and common grace. In On page 37, Bavink, in distinguishing between general and special revelation, writes, General revelation is directed to all men and by means of common grace serves to restrain the eruption of sin. 
It's, by the way, where the Christian Reformed Church got its second point, the second point of 1924. On page 17 and 18, in speaking of the relation between general and special revelation, Bobbink writes, the general revelation is owing to the word which was with God in the beginning, which made all things, which shone as a light in the darkness, and lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John 1, verses 1 through 9. Grace is the content of both revelations, common in the first, special in the second, but in such a way that the one is indispensable for the other. On pages 42 and 43, Bobbink writes, The revelation of God in nature and in history could have no effect upon man if there were not something in man himself that responded to it. Now that's a true statement. The revelation of God in nature and in history could have no effect upon man if there were not something in man himself that responded to it. That is, there's no revelation unless there is a response. That's absolutely true. The revelation of God in all the works of his hands would be quite unknowable to man if God had not planted in his soul an inerasable sense of his existence and being. That's a true statement. The difficulty with that is that Bavink calls that common grace, as is evident from the next quote. Sketching the history of the nations and the great things they accomplished, Bavink sums it all up with the words, when therefore re we review the whole terrain of general revelation, we discover on the one hand that it has been of great value and that it has borne rich fruits. It is owing to general revelation that some religious and ethical sense is present in all men, that they have some awareness still of truth and falsehood, of good and evil, justice and injustice, beauty and ugliness, that they live in the relationship of marriage and the family, of community and state, that they busy themselves with the production, distribution, and enjoyment of all kinds of spiritual and material things. In short, that mankind is by general revelation preserved in its existence, maintained in its unity, and enabled to continue and to develop in history. That's the fruit, says Bob Inc., of grace, common grace. One more quote on page 38, after Bob Inc. has pointed out that grace is the content of both revelations. It is common grace which makes special grace possible, prepares the way for it, and later supports it. And special grace, in its turn, leads common grace up to its own level and puts it into its service. Both revelations, finally, have as their purpose the preservation of the human race, 
The first by sustaining it and the second by redeeming it and both in this way serve the end of glorifying all of God's excellences. That last is an interesting point, by the way. I can well recall when I was going to grade school, probably in about the seventh grade or so, I, I had no opportunity to go to a school, a Protestant reform school, you understand, so we were sent to a, the nearest Christian school, that we would periodically get outside speakers in for chapel, and on occasion these speakers were missionaries. I can recall that on more than one occasion, when these missionaries would come to speak to us, they would come with the express purpose of trying to persuade us to be missionaries ourselves. Seems like in those days, I don't know if it's still that way in other circles, but in those days, that was the one great goal of missionaries when they returned from the field and spoke in the home church to persuade others to go out on the field. And one of the arguments which they used repeatedly and which troubled me deeply even then was this argument. There are souls out there Millions of souls in the jungles of Africa and in the islands of the Pacific who are thirsting to know God. And they can't know Him unless you go and tell them of God and of Christ. They long for salvation. Their hearts are seeking for that which will satisfy their deepest longings. How can they know? If you do not go and tell them, and if you refuse to go, and this part was particularly bothersome and irksome, and if you don't go, these people are going to go to hell and their blood will be on your hands. That's enough to frighten a young person, I tell you. That conjures up images of the fire of hell if I don't become an, uh, a missionary. I didn't understand at that time what was wrong with this. And I had to inquire at last from my father, what is it about all this that lays the guilt for the, the eternal punishment of these Hottentots in Africa on my doorstep? And my father explained to me that this was one of the consequences of holding to general revelation and common grace. These people were all the objects of common grace. And because they were the objects of common grace, and sin was restrained in them, they had a certain longing for salvation, but they knew not from whence to acquire it. Missionaries had to go for that reason. This is what Bavink is saying here. This is very frequently the argument in books in, for example, such learned men as the writings of Philip Schuff and his History of the Christian Church. Volume 1, you will find the very same thing, that the common grace of God created in men throughout the whole world a thirst for something better than polytheism, for example. 
and that it paved the way for Christianity and the spread of the gospel. And if you have read, for example, William Maslink's book, General Revelation and Common Grace, you will find detailed illustrations and arguments in support of that contention, all based on the premise that all men possess general revelation. And general revelation necessarily means grace. It is that idea that is the inevitable consequence of speaking of general revelation. And it is that idea which ought to be severely and consistently reprobated among us. It just isn't so. And it can't possibly be so. You notice, however, interestingly, that within that context of thinking, it's very, very easy to speak of a well-meant offer of the gospel. That is, preaching of the gospel which expresses God's desire to save all that hear it. Why, why would God reveal himself to the ungodly? Why would he reveal himself to the wicked, to the heathen who have not the scriptures or the revelation of Christ? Unless he was kind towards them, gracious towards them, filled with love and compassion towards them. And why would he be filled with love and compassion towards them if it were not his desire to save them? That's what compassion on God's part means. That's the highest expression of his love, his desire to save. And so if grace through general revelation comes to all, it can only be an expression that God on his part wills to save all men and is frustrated in his purposes by the stubborn, sinful rejection of men in whom common grace operates ineffectually. Such a God is the God of the Arminians, distasteful, unhelpful, a God which it is impossible for a believer to serve. Now, it is my contention tonight, I'm not going to say very much about this because the class next week and the following week are going to do a deal almost exclusively with this, but it is my contention to argue tonight that revelation is always connected with grace indeed, but that revelation is connected not with some kind of common and general grace which God shows to all men, but is always connected with special grace, saving grace, the grace that God shows through Christ, and therefore the grace that God shows only to the elect. That's my argument tonight. I want to say a few things about that first of all. In the first place, so far as I know, the word revelation, which we had on the board, you recall, last week, so far as I know, the word revelation is used in Scripture in its noun form and in its verb form 
always as referring to the elect. There are three exceptions to that. I want to mention those exceptions so that you may know why they cannot possibly refute my contention. The three places where the word revelation is used with respect to the wicked are, first of all, Romans 1.18. I'm not going to bother to read that now because we're going to spend a great deal of time taking a long, hard look at that verse and the following verses in just a few moments. Their mention is made of the wrath of God revealed from heaven. Now that's not grace by any stretch of the imagination. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Paul says. There's a use of the word revelation, but it is in connection with wrath. Second use of the word revelation that does not refer to the elect is found in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 8. I'm not going to read that passage. The passage speaks of the revelation of the mystery of sin as it is especially climaxed in the man of sin, the Antichrist, who is believed on by many because God sends them strong delusions. A very significant and important passage. There's certainly no mention made there of general revelation or of any kind of grace. It's the revelation of the man of sin. That's something quite different. And in Romans 2 verse 5, Revelation is spoken of as the revelation of the righteous judgment of God in His wrath against the wicked. Those are the only three places where the word revelation does not refer specifically and concretely to God's elect. Everywhere else, and the word is used in a multitude of places, both in its noun and verb forms, the word refers to to God's revelation to the elect. That's the first point I want to make. In the second place, that is emphasized in Scripture in such a passage as Matthew 11, which is, by the way, a, a key passage in the doctrine of Revelation. You recall that in Matthew 11, the Lord is speaking of John the Baptist and how the Jews would not believe in him. The Lord compares the Jews with children in the marketplace playing games. Children in those days had a game they played. Today. One of the children would play on a flute and he would play songs in different keys, in different chords, I mean. He would play a song, for example, in a major chord, a peppy, lively, jumpy tune. And that was the signal for all the other children to dance. And then all of a sudden he would switch to a minor key and he would play a mournful and doleful tune. And all the children would at that point be required to begin to cry. Jesus said the Jews in relationship to the ministry of John the Baptist were just like those children except... They did the opposite. When someone played a joyful tune, they wept. And when someone played a mournful tune, 
They shouted for joy and danced. Jesus said, this is the way the Jews reacted to the preaching of John the Baptist. Just exactly the opposite of how they should have reacted. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, what a fool. He doesn't eat and drink. He doesn't even enjoy the good gifts of God. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, a wine-bibber and a glutton. Always their reaction over against the kingdom of heaven and the preaching of the gospel was exactly the opposite of what it ought to have been. And so Jesus calls down curses, terrible curses on Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. You know those, those uh, awful words, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so the Lord goes on. His ministry, as was the ministry of John, was rejected. But then the Lord stops and he prays. Very striking, very moving, very dramatic as it were. In the midst of all these curses, he suddenly stops and he prays. This is what he prayed. I thank thee, the prayer of thanksgiving. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that is the sovereign one, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And then, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then the call to his people. It's all so perfect. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, that I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. There's revelation. Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and revealed them to babes. That is, from those who are wise in their own conceits, from these wretched Jews who thought they had a corner on the knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, and who looked with scorn upon the common people as those miserable folk who knew not the law, who were wise in their own eyes. God hid these things from them. Who did he reveal them to? Babes. Simple. Uneducated. What Paul calls, calls the off-scouring of the earth. When the mother cleans the plates before, I guess in these days she puts them in the dishwasher. She shoves off the garbage. That's, though, that's what Paul compares God's people to. The off-scouring of the earth. Those are the ones to whom God reveals the mysteries of the kingdom. Same thing is true, and if we get a chance, I'd like to take a little bit longer look at that, 
of Jesus' explanation for why he teaches in parables. He teaches in parables because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. Why not? Because the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 has to be fulfilled. Seeing they see not and hearing they hear not. Make the heart of this people fat lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and be converted, and I should heal them. That's revelation. In other words, it is my argument tonight, and that's what I'm going to be defending in the rest of these classes, that the word revelation, as it appears in the Scriptures, does not simply consist in this, that God objectively out there reveals himself as to who he is and what he does. But, and if you forget everything else I said tonight, please remember this. But revelation means as well that God works by his Spirit in the hearts of his elect graciously so that they can see and know that revelation. That's part of it. Let me illustrate that. I'm not sure whether I used this illustration last week or not. I sometimes get ahead of myself and forget, but let me use it again to drive home the point. You remember last week I used this illustration of revelation, meaning that it was comparable to the unveiling of a new statue statue in a park somewhere that had been commissioned in honor of a, of a local hero or a national hero. And this statue was covered with uh, coverings, opaque coverings, so that no one could see it. And at an appropriate time, after all the speeches were made, and at the blare of the trumpets and the salute of those present, the covering was pulled away, and there it was for everybody to see. That's revelation. That's the idea of revelation. But now suppose that there are 500 people gathered together in the park to witness this uncovering of this new statue, but all 500 are as blind as bats. They can't see their hand in front of their face. I ask you, is there revelation there? Can you say when the ceremony is all over and all 500 are led to their cars and taken away, can you say the statue was revealed? Of course not. Nobody saw it. They couldn't see it. And if somebody says there was revelation there, then you say, nonsense, nonsense. How can that be? Well, the covering was taken off. Yeah, no. But if nobody saw it, what was revealed? Nothing. Now that's the way it is, you see. And that's why common grace is inseparably connected with general revelation. Man is spiritually blind. So blind, he cannot see anything spiritual. Jesus himself tells Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Sin is spiritual blindness. 
Now, God may be objectively manifested in all the works of his hands and in history, too, if you will. But if a man is blind, there can't be any revelation, can there? How is that possible? Revelation, therefore, has got to include that work of God by means of which he opens the eyes of his people so that they are able to see his revelation. That work is a work of grace, a work of salvation, and is at the very heart and core of all the salvation of the people of God. He causes them to see. That's why Jesus in Matthew 13 says to the disciples, it is given to you to see the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end, but blessed are your eyes for they see, and your ears, for they hear. But you didn't make those eyes see by yourself, and you didn't open your own ears to banish your deafness. That's the work of grace. Blessed are you that ye have eyes to see. God has done that to you. There is no revelation in creation or anywhere else to the ungodly because they cannot see it. Now that takes us to Romans 1, and I'd like to have you turn to Romans 1, because this is the one passage which more than any other is quoted in support of general revelation. And this is going to be the answer to your question too, Dave, that you asked last week. I'm going to come to that now, because Revelation uh, Romans 1 has the answer to that question. The question that was asked, as I recall it, was this. Is it not true that the wicked, the ungodly, have some knowledge of God? And the answer to that question is emphatically yes. Romans 1 explains that. I'm going to go a little bit carefully through this passage, beginning with verse 18, and call your attention to some elements in it. I think this passage in Romans 1 is probably passage that I and the students I have taught in seminary have discussed more frequently than almost any other passage. Let's begin with verse 18 because that's where this section starts. I I would like to begin a little earlier, but we haven't the time for that. You notice that in verse 16, the apostle is talking about the gospel and himself is a preacher of it. And that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Why isn't he ashamed of it? Well, because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That's why. What kind of power is the gospel? The gospel is the power to enable people to see and hear the revelation of God. That's what it is. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But now, the other side of the coin. Let me remind you, before we take a look at this, that from verse 18 on, the apostle is really writing about the heathen. That is, the heathen who have never heard the gospel. 
the heathen whom these missionaries that used to speak in school uh, described as thirsting after God. The heathen in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. That's whom he's speaking of. He begins a discussion of this with the words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, you can very, you can very well call that statement the title to this section. It begins in verse 18 and ends with verse 32. Paul is going to talk about the revelation of the wrath of God from heaven. That's what he's going to talk about. Not the gospel now, but the revelation of the wrath of God from heaven. Not much grace there. Notice that right off the bat. That's not grace. Whatever this passage may teach, it doesn't say anything about grace. It's talking about the revelation of wrath against ungodly people and unrighteous people. What is their ungodliness? What is their unrighteousness? That is described in the end of 18 where the apostle says, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That's their sin. That's why the wrath of God is revealed against them. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, that word hold here really does not do justice to what the apostle has in mind. You should really read that. Who hold down the truth. Or, better yet, who suppress the truth. Now, I'm going to have an awful lot to say about that word suppress. So, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's their sin. That's why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. Well, you see, if you suppress the truth, then you have the truth, right? You do. How can you suppress that which you don't have? If I have something in my mind, some particular experience from my past, that is extraordinarily embarrassing or extraordinarily distasteful, and I don't like to think about it, then I suppress it as much as I possibly can. But it's got to be there to be suppressed. The memory of it has got to be there. Otherwise, I can't suppress it. Now, that's what Paul is saying. They suppress the truth. So that implies that they have it. All right? How is it that they have that truth which they suppress? Here's how. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. All right? So they have the truth which they suppress, and they have it because it's manifest in them, and it's manifest in them because God shows it unto them. Now, I don't want to get involved in that expression in them for the moment, although that's a very striking expression. But that means that God 
impresses the truth of himself upon their consciousness. God does that inside of them so that there can be no mistake about it that they know him. Nevertheless, he does that through showing himself unto them. That is, he shows himself unto them and what he shows them objectively, he impresses upon their consciousness subjectively. How does he show it unto them? Well, says Paul, this is how he shows it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they may be without excuse. Now, that's an important verse. Means in the first place that God is invisible and that all the things concerning God are invisible. Means in the second place that the creation which God formed by His Word make these invisible things clearly seen. Trees and flowers and lions and tigers and the Nile River as it floods and produces rich soil, rain, and sunshine, all the creation clearly shows the invisible things of God, which you couldn't see otherwise. And especially, Paul says, these invisible things of God are clearly seen in the creation, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. That is, what does God show in the creation? He shows that he is a powerful God. He calls the things that were not as though they were. He shows that. He shows that for everyone to see. He shows that so clearly that there is no mistake about it. No one can ever be mistaken about it. And because all these things demonstrate his power, unmistakably, clearly, they all show that He is God and that He alone is God and that there is no other God besides Him. That's His Godhead. Creation shows that. Now, what is God's purpose in that? Is God's purpose to prepare the way for special grace? Is God's purpose in that to restrain sin? Is God's purpose in that to show His love and His compassion to all men? That isn't what the Apostle says here. Here's His purpose. So that they are without excuse. That's the purpose of God. When all these people that never heard the Gospel, in the Old Testament, all the nations surrounding Israel that never heard the Gospel, In the new dispensation, all these people who lived and died and never heard the gospel, never heard Christ, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ and of God, and the question is put to them, as it will be, why didn't you serve me? They will never be able to say, we didn't know you. We didn't know you. You never told us about yourself. You never made clear that you were God and that you We're the only true God. God will say, not so. I did tell you. 
I told you in everything that I made, the sun and the moon and the stars, all testified of my power and Godhead. You have no excuse. You go to hell because you refuse to serve me. That's how they are able to suppress the truth. Now, I hope that's clear so far. Now, the apostle goes on to describe how they suppress the truth. How do they do that? Because that when they knew God, they knew him, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. That's what they should have done. They should have glorified him as God and been thankful to him for the rain and sunshine and the crops. But they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And, and notice the word here, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. That's what they did. They knew He was God, they knew he was God alone, but they suppressed it. And in their efforts to suppress it, they took that which they knew of God and they changed it deliberately, consciously, wickedly, willfully into an image made like unto corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And they said, this is our God. That's what they did. A little later on, Paul says in verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature. And there you should read not more than because they didn't serve the creator at all, but rather than worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's heathen dumb. Their reaction to what they know of God in the creation is not, oh, we would like to know more about Him, and if only someone would come and tell us about Him, then we would believe on Him. Oh, no. Their reaction to what is revealed in the creation is this. We don't want Him. We don't want Him. We're going to suppress what we know. And in order successfully to suppress what we know, we're going to change the truth into a lie. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to set up our idols and we're going to say, these are our gods. That's how they suppress it. There is a world of, uh, what shall I call it? World of psychology packed into that word suppress. And I want to make a point of this tonight. This is always the case with the wicked. And sad to say, it's the case with us. Even as believers oftentimes. Supposing, for example, that we commit a sin, public sin, and a brother concerned about our spiritual welfare comes to us and says to us, what you did is wrong. You must repent of that. What's our reaction? What do you think you are to stick your nose in my business? What are you trying to tell me? How come it is that you're telling me how to live? Go and clean your own house. Don't bother yourself so much with my life. 
and clean up the mess in your own life. That's our reaction, is it not? Why? Well, because as a matter of fact, to confess sin is the hardest thing in the whole world to do. And in fact, can be done only by grace. And so our natural reaction to such a thing is this. I'm not going to kowtow to this guy who thinks he's going to tell me how I live, but I'm going to live the way I please without the interference of busybodies who have noses far too long. The trouble is, you know, trouble is that we know that our brother is right. We know that. You don't have to be regenerated to know that. I'll come to that in a few moments when we take a look at Romans 2, but we know that the brother is right. We know what we did is wrong. But we don't want to admit it. What are we going to do? We're going to suppress it. That's what we're going to do. That is, suppress that it was wrong. What's the best way to suppress something that's wrong? It's to put something in its place. Supposing, for example, to be a little bit more concrete, I leave the church. And the elders come to me and say, you may do that. Article 28 of the Confession of Faith lays upon you the solemn obligation to join yourself to the true church, though the edict of princes be against it. But I've made up my mind to leave. Now, I know it's wrong to leave. And I, don't know, I know I don't have any business doing it. And I know that I sin when I do it. Of course I know that. Every man does. But I don't want to admit it. And so I want to suppress the wrong of it. What's the best way to do it? Well, I say to the elders, Ah, that wretched congregation, there's no love there. The preaching is always over my head. Can't understand a thing of what the minister says. Doctrine, 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 doctrine. That's all you ever get. You never get any practice from the pulpit. And the people in that congregation are as cold as fish. Now, whether all those things are true or not is totally beside the point. Even if they were true, you still mayn't leave the church. Article 28 doesn't say you must join yourself to the true church only until such a time as the church doesn't have any love anymore. No, it doesn't say that. You belong by the true church, period. But you see, we're looking for reasons to justify ourselves because in the justification of our sins, we change the sin. It's always wrong, except in my case, it's right. Supposing a man joins the union and the elders say, that's wrong. And the man says, well, I have to feed my family, don't I? I can't get a job. I can't go to the deacons. I have seven children and the deacons can't afford to support me. I need a job. The word of God is you may join a union, period. No ifs and ands and buts about it. But when we try to justify ourselves, and we're always all the time busy engaged, busily engaged in doing this, in order really to suppress what we know is true, we substitute for it our own excuses why in our case it was perfectly right to do. It's what the wicked do. It's what the wicked do. We set up the idol of an exception in our case to bypass the clear and unmistakable command of God to obey Him. We all do it. We all do it all the time. You don't even have to teach little children to do it. You tell a little child you did what's wrong. Yes, but yes, but yes, but so-and-so made me do it. Or 
I didn't really do it, but so-and-so is the one guilty. Now, the wicked do this in an absolute sense of the word. You understand that? That's suppressed. You argue and argue and argue in your own mind to suppress in your consciousness that which you know is true. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. You go to hell for that. That's what the wicked do. They know that God is God. They know that he must be served. Every single one of them, no matter where he lives on the face of the earth, knows that. God sees to it. But he won't do it. And so he changes the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. In that way, suppressing that which he knows. Now, you know, if you keep that up long enough, you can convince yourself that you're right. I truly believe that there are evolutionists in this world who believe with all their heart that they're right. But if they really believe that they are right, they are the most miserable of all creatures because they are beyond salvation. If I commit a sin and I justify myself and I persist in that justification and suppress the wrong of it, so that it isn't in my consciousness any longer. That's what the Bible means by hardening. That's what the Bible means by searing our consciences with a, hard, a hot iron. And in the sphere of the church, that's what the Bible means by crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting Him to open shame. Always the escape is, and it's so simple, and yet so impossibly hard. The escape is always just to say, I sinned, I'm sorry. That's all. But that's the escape because that leads to the cross. Now that's another matter, but that's Romans 1. They suppress the truth so completely and utterly that they become persuaded in their own consciousness that there is no God and that their idols are gods. I've been in Buddhist temples, and I've been in Hindu temples. It sends the cold chills running up and down my back. These people are so in the grip of idolatry. They believe that ugly, fat-bellied monstrosity they call Buddha is a god. They're god. They believe it. Is that because they never knew God? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, one other element, one other element about this. God is sovereign in that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against these people. Is that grace? Is that revelation? No, 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 no. Nothing to do with that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven in this way, you will notice from the text, that God punishes their sin of idolatry with sin. Look, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, and so on and so on. That was the rampant homosexuality prevalent 
in the Roman Empire of Paul's day. I want you people to understand that the rampant homosexuality in this land is God's wrath against the idolatry of our country which worships wealth and pleasure. It doesn't just come. It's God in his anger against idolatry punishing sin with sin. And that's the rest of Romans 1. Now, that sovereignty of God must be extended even beyond that. The sovereignty of God is manifested in what I call judicial hardening. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and God hardens the hearts of the wicked who change the truth of God into a lie. If you get caught in that trap where you are so intent on justifying yourself, that you make the truth a lie and right and wrong and convince yourself that what you did is all right. That's hardening. That's God hardening. That's the history of the world as God punishes sovereignly sin with sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Nevertheless, that's in the process of unbelief where the sovereignty of God is manifested in his sovereign punishment of the wicked. But there's more. And for that, I want to call your attention to John 12. John 12, verses 37 through 41. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Why didn't they believe on him? Well, because they suppressed the truth. And because God punished that suppression of the truth with hardening. That's all true. But there's more. There's more. Why didn't they believe? This is the deepest reason why they didn't believe. That the saying of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled. He was prophesying, which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. And don't make that any softer than as it stands here in all of its force. They could not believe because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes. And now the quotation from Isaiah 6 that Jesus quoted in connection with parables. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. That's part of the glory of God that Isaiah saw, that he blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. So behind even their unbelief, behind their wicked rebellion, behind their suppression of the truth, lies the eternal and unchangeable purpose of God in His decree of reprobation. No general revelation. Now, I have to call your attention at this point 
to one more passage in Romans, and that's Romans 2. It has to do with the same thing as Romans 1, except from a little different point of view. Verse 14, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now that's a powerful, powerful verse. He's talking about the Romans once again. The Romans. The Romans who were famous for their jurisprudence, you understand. They laid the basis for all Western law. Roman jurisprudence was the foundation for canon law in the medieval times, and it was the foundation for the Magna Carta, which uh, uh, King John had to sign in the plains of Runnymede, which is the, the cornerstone of uh, democracy and uh, of liberty. And it became, therefore, the foundation for all law in Western civilization, Roman jurisprudence. They knew the law. How did they know the law, says the apostle? Well, through the things that are made. Because the things that are made not only show that God is God, but they show how he must be served. They show what is right and what is wrong. For embedded in that creation are all the ordinances of the law. If I may be practical for just a moment, this argument, you know, that uh, unconverted people who divorce and remarry are to be excused from their divorce and remarriage because they didn't know the law of God is a specious argument. Marriage is a creation ordinance. And the laws against divorce and remarriage are embedded in the creation. Even Canada geese are monogamous. But people are dumber than, more wicked than Canada geese. But they know, they know from the creation. They know from the creation it's wrong to kill. They know from the creation it's wrong to steal. They know from the creation it's wrong to harm your neighbor. They know that. They have the work of the law written in their hearts. There it is again, see. It's objectively in the creation, but it is sealed upon their consciousness by God himself. We could talk another hour about that, but we won't do that. And so because the works of the law are sealed upon their consciousness, and they know what is right and what is wrong, when they refuse to do it, they know they're doing wrong. And when they sin, they know they're doing wrong. Their consciences accuse or else excuse one another. So what becomes the rule by which men govern their conduct? Well, you all know what it is. Damn God for his rules. We'll do as we please. As long as we can get away with the from the suffering the consequence. Maybe God can still punish us so that if we live licentious lives, we're going to have unwanted children. But now that we can have abortions and practice birth control, 
God be damned. We're going to do as we please and live as we please. AIDS is God's wrath against us for our corruption. We'll find a vaccine by cracky that'll cure these diseases and we'll thumb our noses at the Most High and live as we well please. That's man. That's his philosophy. And that's handed down, sad to say, by our Supreme Court, which denies an objective law of God. I wanted to take a look at the confessions to you in this regard, but we haven't got time anymore. Maybe we can do that next time. I don't know. See once. But I want to say a little bit about that now from the viewpoint of the blessedness of Revelation. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. That's grace. That's sovereign grace. That's particular grace. That's saving grace. It's the only kind of grace there is. What does that mean? Well, that means, first of all, that God reveals himself savingly to his people in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that next week, the Lord willing. But he reveals himself savingly through Jesus Christ in a very, very wonderful and blessed way. How does he do that? He does that by taking away from us our determination to suppress the truth. And our determination to suppress the truth by changing the glory of God into a lie and by simply putting us on our knees where we confess our sins before Him and before one another. There is nothing more wonderful than confession of sin. Nothing. That's salvation. That breaks the vicious cycle of hardening. That's the escape from damnation. That's deliverance from the chains of darkness. Simply, sovereignly bringing us to our knees to say before God, I'm a sinner. I did wrong. Forgive. That's all. It's all so simple and yet all so impossible. That's how God does it. He reveals Himself that way first of all by bringing sinners to their knees. Why? Because that's the way they go to the cross. And there is the fullness of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ who saves. Then we know Him in Christ in all of His glory and all of His power and all of His blessedness in all of His grace and mercy and love, in all of His compassion, in all of the riches and treasures of His own divine being, in the cross. But you won't go to the cross unless you need the cross. And you need the cross when you know you're a sinner. This is why on almost every page of Scripture you will find that strong and inescapable requirement. Confess your sins. That's not a minor thing. Peripheral in the Christian life. It lies at the heart of it. For at the foot of the cross, we know God in the riches of His salvation. And then revelation becomes a reality in our lives in this respect that 
God reveals himself as our God. And we know him as our covenant father. Then revelation leads to knowledge, which is eternal life. Fellowship. Fellowship. I said in a sermon this past Sunday night, the very heart of knowledge is fellowship. To live apart from God is death. To have fellowship with God is life. Revelation brings that fellowship. Have we deserved that, that God should reveal himself to us and not to those who perish? What have we done to deserve that? If God had not broken our stubborn hearts and brought us to our knees and wrenched a cry of sorrow for sin out of the depths of our souls, taken us to the cross, we would never be there. But now that we're there, and we see the riches of it and the blessedness of it, and no revelation, what can we say? except thanks for thy great grace to us poor sinners. It is a blessed thing to know God. Now we have some time for questions. Yes, that an acceptable definition of general revelation would be? Um, I really don't know. I am arguing for abandoning the term completely. I am saying, we ought not to be talking about general revelation. There is no such thing. We don't need a definition of it because it doesn't exist. It'd be like trying to formulate the definition of a unicorn. There is no such thing. So, that's what I'm arguing. I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want anyone to try to define it because it's a non-existent thing. Well, it's pretty, pretty general, pretty characteristic of Reformed and Presbyterian theology that anyone that ever talked about general revelation talked about common grace too. I don't think you can talk about the one without talking about the other. Romans 1 speaks of God making himself known to the wicked, but strikingly the word used there is manifested himself. God manifested himself. So that scripture reserves the term revelation to that work of grace which he performs as an act of the salvation of his people. I, I find it impossible myself, and I would guess any man if he thought it through would find it equally impossible to speak of a general revelation without speaking of common grace. I don't think that's possible. Yes, that's the biblical term. God manifests himself to the wicked, but they suppress it. And I'm very, uh, very uh, determined to distinguish very sharply between those two. I think to speak of revelation generally to all men is it leads to nothing but grief. Yes, Brenda. Uh, <laughs> If you read Reverend Uxma's writings, first, when he came out of the Christian Reformed Church, he talked about general revelation. I think I mentioned this last week. And then it, maybe in the 40s or so, you begin to find the term general revelation in his writings in quotation marks. 
and the impression is left, mm, he's having some doubts about this. And then pretty soon, towards his, in his later writings, he specifically says he does not want general revelation, and he abandons the term altogether. So there's a kind of a development. Joe? I would put it this way, just as reprobation serves election, so does the revelation of the wrath of God serve the revelation of his love. You could even go a step further and say, when we see the wrath of God upon the ungodly, also as revealed in Romans 1 in, the, in punishing sin with sin, then we can very humbly say, that's what God has delivered us from, or that's where we'd be too. No grace. No grace. Wrath. I, I mentioned three exceptions to that, all of them referring to wrath and sin. Second Thessalonians 2 speaks of the revelation of the man of sin, Antichrist. And Romans 2 verse 7 speaks of the revelation of the wrath of God as well as Romans 1, Romans 2, 7. It is my judgment that the word revelation is used there because that also is for the benefit of the people of God. It is a wrath of God poured out upon the wicked, but it is for the benefit of the people of God. God is revealing himself to his people in his wrath upon the ungodly too. And he's revealing himself to his people as a God who has graciously delivered his people from that wrath. But my point is you never find the term revelation in connection with grace to the wicked, in connection with love, in connection with kindness. You never find it. Scripture doesn't talk about it. You hid these things from the wise and prudent. You revealed them to babes, the contrast between revelation and hiding. Anyone else? Okay, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for this time together tonight. Thou art indeed a God of unspeakable grace and mercy, who hast made Thyself known to us poor sinners, according to Thy own sovereign choice, as Thou hast determined it from before the foundation of the world. Thou hast made Thyself known unto us in Jesus Christ, as the God of our salvation, that we may know Thee from the depths of the misery and shame of our sin and death as the God who delivers us and takes us into Thy own covenant fellowship that we may know and experience and taste and see that Thou art our God and that we are Thy people. What a great wonder Thou hast revealed to us. Preserve us in Thy truth and keep us ever faithful to Thee and grant unto us Thy blessing. Forgive all the sins we have committed. Bring us back again next week according to Thy will. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. 
and you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.